Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Hey Nizar, we've got a special guest today. Yes, indeed, a very special guest, uh, a former colleague of mine at university and currently the campaigns manager at SMEX, Social Media Exchange. Hello Azza Masri, how are you doing? Hi, it's so good to be here. My name is Azza, as Nizar said, and I work at SMEX, which is an NGO that deals with digital rights in Lebanon and in the region. So what are really digital rights? It's anything from your freedom to express yourself on online to your right to privacy. We work on things against censorship and surveillance in the region and we also do campaigns to raise awareness on uh, on these issues. Welcome to the show. We're super excited to have you and we're going to be talking uh, a little bit more about this. Our main topic uh, later on in the podcast today is going to be, you know, digital rights and specifically uh, digital privacy. Yeah, it's a, it's an exciting topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but first, of course, we have to get to the news of the week. And of course, the big story this week was cabinet. We, we thought at the beginning of the week that cabinet was actually going to be formed because it looked like it was it was going to happen. On Monday, Samir Jaja came out and basically said, uh, you know, all right, we're giving up. We are going to enter the cabinet. Uh, there had been a real question as to whether the LF might have actually stayed out or whatever because they didn't get what they had wanted. Uh, but Samir Jaja came out on Monday and said, no, we are going to enter the cabinet despite the fact that we didn't get everything that we wanted. Uh, we're not going to be the ones who hold this up any further. This was but, like the biggest obstacle removed, right? Exactly. And and so we thought, okay, well, that's done. But, but there, there was a small issue of uh, Sunni representation. Uh, that was, you know, if you remember, like, there have always been three issues uh, for the cabinet formation. Uh, the Christian question, which was the big one, and then the Druze question, which has been solved, but then also Sunni representation. And this one, we, we thought it was going to be solved relatively quickly. It may still be solved relatively quickly, but as of right now, it has not been solved. Uh, it's basically six Sunni MPs who are not a part of the future movement, who are saying, like, we we are six MPs, we deserve a minister uh, in the government, which, which is sort of like a reasonable claim, right? There are 27 Sunni MPs in the Lebanese parliament. And of those 27, 17 are with the future movement, but that leaves 10 outside of it. So, I mean, it sounds like a very reasonable thing, like, hey, get, give us our, our fair share. If everybody else is getting, getting a, a slice of the pie, we should get one as well, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, you... The detractors would say, well, actually, four of those six members are already members of other blocks. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got Qasem Hashem in the Amal uh, movement's block. You have uh, uh, Al-Walid Sukariye in Hezbollah's block. And then you have uh, Faisal Karami and Jihad Samad both in the Marada Karami block. Yeah. So the only thing that's in common between them is that they're Sunni. There's no political... Uh, umbrella. Well, they're all like they're all like Damascus oriented, right? Okay, okay. they're all sort of like pro March eighth or pro uh, pro Syrian. Uh, uh -huh. And so there, there's a, there's a weird thing though in in this uh, composition, right? You've got these four that I already mentioned, and then you also have Adnan Tra uh, Trabulsi, who is Ahbash, and Abdul uh, Rahim Murad, uh, who is an independent. But then you don't have Osama Saad. Mm -hmm. The the Sidon MP who's very close to Hezbollah, Amal, you know, he's weirdly not a part of the these six MPs. You know, you would think it would be seven MPs making this demand, but I don't know what's going on here. He's not joining them for whatever reason. Yeah, he's been an opponent of Hariri for a long time, but this time he did not join, which is interesting. Yeah, very strange, and I have I have no idea what's going on with that. 
there's also uh, Mikati. He's one of the other guys who's not a part of this. Uh, and he's this, this sort of like goes along with Mikati's uh, positioning of himself as sort of like in the center between Hariri and between March 14th and March 8th. Right. Yeah. E- even though, like, if you talk to people on the March 14th side, they would say that, oh, no, he's definitely like in league with Damascus uh, and, and he's definitely March 8th. Uh, his his cabinet back in 2011 was con- like the, they called it the cabinet of Hezbollah, you know, the, the people inside the future movement, for instance. Yeah. Anyway, so the the six MPs, they're demanding a seat in the cabinet uh, in the Council of Ministers, and they're supported in this uh, by Hezbollah. Uh, and Hezbollah has come out very strongly in support of this. And and once everything seemed as though cabinet was about to be formed, Hezbollah actually reportedly refused to give over the names of it, its share in cabinet in order to like stop the process, basically saying, no, you're not going to form a cabinet unless you resolve this issue. And that seems to be a tactical mistake. They are getting blamed now entirely for the, the holdup in, in the government. Especially that their main Christian ally, the president, Michel Aoun, seems to have sided more with Hariri on this issue. Exactly. And it, it seems that they're sort of like backed into a corner now. And and this is only this is something that's only going to get worse as time goes on, right? They're the ones being blamed. Well, the blame is only going to get larger and magnified the longer that this uh, continues. And and so I actually think that it's, it's quite possible that Hezbollah could sort of backtrack and, and make some sort of deal that saves some face for them, but also gets the cabinet out relatively quickly and and also uh, considering that as of monday u.s sanctions against iran snap back and the conventional wisdom here in lebanon has been that hezbollah wants a government before that happens uh, a government specifically headed by saad hariri before that happens just as sort of like an insurance yeah if that actually happens and a a government's formed we're, we're recording this on saturday if a government's formed like tonight or tomorrow we we're still gonna drop this episode <laughs> but we are going to come back with a, a special episode as well uh er, early on next week of course that may not happen Hassan Nasrallah is going to speak next weekend reportedly and so things should be clear by then in in the meantime though I just want to say very quickly like what what did we learn this week from my perspective Aoun's strategy of being just absolutely intransigent and not giving a single inch has been validated hmm. uh Basically, Aoun and the FPM got everything that they wanted. Uh, and this is despite having, like, in my opinion, maybe not the world's best strategy. Uh, <laughs> like, the LF seemed to have a, a things put together a lot better. But at the end of the day, they didn't get what they wanted, really. Like, they yeah. did get the deputy prime minister spot, but I don't think anybody really wanted that. For me, Jaja coming out and saying, yes, I'm going to join the government, despite not getting everything that we wanted sort of validates this Aoun Basile strategy of never compromise. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, that's not a great lesson, I don't think, for Lebanese politics. It's like if if you are absolutely in, intransigent and you just don't give an inch, then you win because everybody else is going to compromise before you. Especially if you have good allies. Yeah. Right? Because, like, this is not only a Aoun thing. This is also related to Hezbollah giving him the green light to do this because Birri was more hesitant, but Aoun has Hezbollah on his side, right? Aoun or Basile has Hezbollah on their side and this gives them the the capacity or the leverage to do this kind of very aggressive politics as opposed to the LF, which has a much weaker ally now, Hariri, with a much weaker representation in parliament and political positioning in general, right? Yes, but at the same time, like, uh, Hariri, like, he just didn't play hardball. Like, he's the prime minister and the prime minister designate, he definitely 
could have just gone toe-to-toe with Aoun. Like, he is the uncontested leader of the Sunnis in Lebanon. Regardless of whatever, you know, losses he might have had in parliament uh, in the elections, you know, he is still the leader of the Sunnis in Lebanon. He could have gone toe-to-toe and been, you know, just as uncompromising as Aoun in in this. Uh, But he didn't. He, He was like sort of the nice guy, and his side lost. Yeah, that's fair. Apart from cabinet, we also had another tragic piece of news this week, which is that in the domestic violence case five years ago, where a husband beat his wife to death reportedly, and the wife is called Rula Yaqub, if people are following the news, the husband has been acquitted of all charges this week by the court of the criminal court in North Lebanon. And uh, it's because, uh, you know, the committee, the judicial committee that rules in this court is formed of three judges, Two of them said that the evidence presented does not qualify as evidence. The third member, who is the president of the court, rejected what their like um, their uh, verdict, but he cannot stop the decision because it's a, like a, it's by majority, right? So what happened is that he is acquitted now for now. But then state prosecutor Samir Hamoud took action very quickly and he requested that the case is taken to the court of a casa- of cassation, Mahkamat Tamiz. Uh, which is kind of the equivalent of appeal, but has less jurisdictions, less powers. It's basically the Supreme Court for any sort of civil or criminal action in Lebanon. Yeah, but the origin of the problem is that this case has been so like distorted, so polluted with all these suspicious things. You know, from the first instance, uh, the wife was buried before the forensic team checked her body, right? So the body had to be exhumed and checked afterwards and then the forensic medical report was also uh, very um, hesitant to say that the beating beating was related to the death and then this led to the evidence being much weaker than it could have been and then not all the testimonies that were expected to be presented to court were presented to court in fact there are some people that were expected to be witnesses and they were not but we had two very strong testimonies one from a person who visited the wife and talked to her daughter in the same day and her daughter told her yes my father beat me and my mother and he threatened to kill my mother and the testimony of a neighbor who heard something like what he called an interrogation, a violent interrogation, someone asking a question and then beating someone and then asking another question until this stopped. But the case overall has been covered in one way or another for reasons we cannot really confirm. Some people have say that the husband has political connections or some people just blame, you know, patriarchy and sexist judges. We really don't know. It, it does say something, though, that uh, Samir Hamoud, the, the, who is the top prosecutor, sort of like the attorney general of Lebanon, right? that he responded to basically the public outcry of, of this and, and immediately, you know, went into action and ordered uh, one of the state prosecutors, one of the prosecutors under him to pursue this further and to appeal. And to give credits where it's due, uh, Samir Hamoud took action this time because last time in the case of Manal Asi, who was also beaten to death by her husband, he did not. And there were protests and there, were so, there was so much pressure by feminist groups and CAFA and other organizations saying, you have to take action. This is ridiculous. So he took action, action 10 days later, almost this time he kind of responded. So I think the credit is for the people who are like, you know, um, fighting these decisions uh, continuously and doing the advocacy. Yeah, the, it, it does make a difference, perhaps. Yeah. We also had a weird thing happening this week. A TV channel reported that a tattoo artist has AIDS and has been doing tattoos in Lebanon and uh, focused on the fact that he's Syrian, etc. Yeah, some scandalous report. Um, So everyone was talking about it on social media. And then the health ministry had to issue a statement saying, guys, if someone has AIDS, it doesn't mean they cannot be a tattoo artist because 
you know the way that these diseases are transmitted are this this or that way you know they had to explain these things um also all the media coverage was like confusing aids with hiv so we don't really know what the person is if the person is hiv positive or he has aids and really i mean it was very bad coverage as usual of these topics but this provoked a very interesting discussion in the country about you know the stigmas related to people have who have HIV or AIDS. But it's still just like disheartening, right? That something like this happened and you had just this basically this fear mongering that was it was just like punching down <laughs> like totally like, oh, AIDS, HIV, that's dirty, that's stigmatized. Oh, and also like connecting that to like being Syrian as well. It was just like a really weird uh, and, and like low, like low blow. Like it's really sad and disheartening to see that. But what else is new with the Lebanese uh, media? I mean, that's how they get their views, right? With being sensationalist and really finding ways to to stoke the feelings of xenophobia against Syrian refugees who are incredibly marginalized, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we've spoken several times on this podcast about uh, stoking xenophobia against Syrians is very politically popular, right? It's great for politicians. But as you rightly point out here, like this is a larger systematic thing. It's it's a great thing for media to do it as yeah, well because it yeah, yeah. drives clicks and views and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's an entirely other episode that we can really go into <laughs> True. to break down this dependency of the media on this political rhetoric, whether it is, you know, a political economic dependency or, you know, the dependency in terms of how they do the news here. Uh, we also had electricity news this week uh, a couple things uh edl is apparently cutting the electricity flow not inside the city of beirut but like outside uh apparently the government doesn't have money to pay for fuel or there there's an issue of just transactions like, yeah uh who has the proper authorization to get this so already the production is down about 200 megawatts which is about a tenth of, of the country's capacity to begin with oh god and, and also, though, we on, on the positive side, uh, we had uh, Cesar Khalil, the minister of energy, uh, announcing like the power plant projects uh, by this American company, Prime South, uh, up in Dera Mar. They're also doing something in Zahrani. The one in Dera Mar was like upping things from 450 megawatts to 470 megawatts. So a whole whopping 20 megawatts difference, <laughs> uh, which is great. I don't want to complain, but there's a lot more work to be done. We also found that Junier has the 23rd most polluted air in the world, according to Greenpeace, uh, the, a study of like 50 cities around the world. It's fifth in the Arab world. It tops Cairo. And, and immediately from this, EDL responded because EDL has, you know, like uh, this plant in uh, Zouk Mikhail uh, and also a power barge there and everything. Uh, and of course, like they came out immediately, like not us, not just us, right? Um, but yeah, this is a big deal. Apparently today, Saturday, uh, a bunch of Kesselwen MPs are meeting specifically on this subject. So we may see more action come from this. Also, very quickly, General Security says that around 90,000 Syrian uh, refugees have returned. This is a much better breakdown this time that they gave than last time. Last time, back in September, you remember Abbas Ibrahim uh, said 50,000 in return. We had no idea where that number came from. But this time they broke it down. They said 7,670 went back through General Security returns programs, which roughly tracks with like the the number that, that we think it is based on General Security statements. Yeah. Um, but then they said another 80,000 had returned on their own which I guess they're counting some sort of net flow statistics uh, at the border. 
so there was a lot more news this week, but we just don't have time for it. We got to get to the main topic uh, that we uh, that we have you here for, Asa, uh, and that's digital privacy. And and so there there was a law passed uh, in September that touches on this, right? Yeah. But do you want to really get into the law right now? It's kind of boring. So maybe we need to like back backtrack a little bit and talk about the alpha campaign, which has people buzzing, right? The not everything is for sharing campaign, which is really, really annoying as a campaign. Yeah, it was horrible. I saw yeah. a video and uh, it was really horrible. Yeah, yeah. So they basically scapegoated people in saying that you're the reason why you get blackmailed and sextorted and cyberbullied online. It's because of the things that you do online. But that's not necessarily true, right? I mean, there are safe ways for you to send your nudes. I'm not telling you to stop sending nudes. Nudes are fun to send. But there are ways to do it that don't put your privacy at risk. First thing you can do is downloading Signal. Uh, Signal is much better than WhatsApp and it doesn't save anything on its server and it self-destroys itself in 24 hours. The messages self-destroy in 24 hours. They leave breadcrumbs as well, though, right? I mean, the metadata is completely encrypted and does not, isn't saved on any server. So it's a lot more encrypted than WhatsApp. And it's not owned by Facebook as well. It's not. It's actually owned by a foundation, non-profit. Okay, so going back to the alpha campaign, though, yeah. the, the basic idea behind the alpha campaign, though, seems to be like shifting the responsibility for privacy to the individual, right? That's true. Instead yeah. of alpha taking responsibility for protecting privacy or the government taking responsibility, exactly. this whole ad campaign seems to be like, you should have kept that, you know, those pictures private. Exactly, right? exactly. And it's not just pictures, you know, it's telling people you need to self-censor, which is not something that you need to promote here because people do self-censor. And that's not something, you know, in a democracy that's healthy. Yeah, so I mean, the, the real question here then is, where does the responsibility lie? And th there isn't really an answer under Lebanese law, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So when you look at the history of uh, legal frameworks in regards to data storing and data processing in the country, it's very vague. And it's also sometimes they contradict themselves. So the earliest one that you can find is from 1999, uh, which sort of guarantees the privacy of electronic data only when it comes to the sort of outside interference towards the data. So in the sense that, for example, you are uh, guaranteed the privacy of electronic data against hacking and eavesdropping and all that stuff. But there have been circulars since then that actually go against that law. In 2005, there was a circular that was uh, that came out of the telecoms ministry that basically required internet service providers or ISPs to retain uh, user data for a whole year. That, was, that was signed by our favorite person in the world, uh, Abdelmonam Youssef, who is, was formerly like the director of Ogero, very controversial figure. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's gone now. I, I think most people like that he's gone now as well. But yeah, he, he's the one who's responsible for that. And and then there, there was another circular uh, later on, uh, this time from the, the state prosecutor, the, the person who uh, was the immediate uh, predecessor of Samir Hamoud, Hatem Mahdi. Uh, and it basically copied the language from Abdul Monim Yusuf's uh, 2005 circular. And, and it said the same thing, you know, like you have to retain this data. All ISPs, all Internet service providers have to retain the data for a period of a year. Yeah. So the kind of data that they do retain is, for example, user data, uh, your username, the user's IP address, the websites to which they are connected and the protocols used in the process, in addition to specifying the user's location. 
Uh, and and then also we we have a decision uh, just from last year that uh, was signed by the telecommunications minister himself, Jamal Jarrah, that requires data retention this time for six months. So we, so we have we have like telecoms ministry, uh, state prosecutor's office, and telecoms ministry these various decisions circulars uh requiring this data retention right so what's the pretext behind this what's the logic is it that you know we need this data for uh, judicial procedures or what exactly is the, is the idea behind it well i i think it's looking at the timing i think that's very uh indicative the one in 2005 what i think was in december 2005 but still in 2005 What is that after? Obviously, the Hariri assassination, yeah. right? The one from 2013 was after Wissam al-Hassan's assassination. I, I don't think that there's one a, a, a similar example for 2017, but these seem to be like sort of like security-related measures. And and we see, you know, if you talk to ISPs and everything, they do have this data requested from them, from uh, ISF or general security or, uh, you know, various security apparatuses. And so this 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 data does get used. It does get released to security agencies um, in in what some may consider a violation of Law 140 from 1999. Uh, although that that's a question for lawyers to answer, not me. But that's sort of on the security side of things, right? There, there's also a huge, as big, if not bigger question on just the commercial side of things, right? Absolutely, yeah. And this is where the new law comes in, which was passed in September, this September. The full name of the law is the Electronic Transactions and Personal Data Law, or for short, e-transaction law. And all the buzz centered around giving finally regulations to businesses about how they can do their online commerce. But we need to look further into the fine print of what this law means in processing and storing our data or user data in general, which means that we need to do a deep dive into the law and specifically chapter five of the law, which concerns itself with data processing and retention. Yeah, I I, I tried reading this uh, chapter five. Uh, Smex has uh, an English translation on on its website. Yeah, yeah, we do. We'll put it in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. Yeah, and it, it just seems like very general poorly defined it's hard to wrap my my brain around exactly what's being required yeah, here yeah you can uh, almost say it's deliberately vague so basically chapter five tell, uh, tells us in a nutshell that it concentrates the power on the executive branch so the ministries especially in the hands of the ministry of trade and economics the ministry of interior and to some extent to the ministry of defense There are never clear-cut explanations that really justify uh, why and how these ministries would use your, uh, one's data because of the vague language. Just to expand really quickly on that, it basically this law puts all of all of the responsibility and authority in the hands of the economy minister. Yes. Right. Yes. It, everything is centralized in him. And yeah, like security agencies, Ministry of Interior, Justice, whoever, they can come in and, and like make requests, but the power is stored in the economy ministry. Right. Yeah. And that's absolutely dangerous because there is no checks and balances structure that allows for accountability or holding the Ministry of Economy accountable uh, for the potential, you know, misuse of data or the abuse of data. 
And, and that's one of the other really big complaints about this. Not only does it centralize this in this, you know, not independent body, very much a political <laughs> or can be a politicized organi organization, the Ministry of Economy, not that ministry particularly, but any ministry headed by a political appointee, right? But also just the lack of safeguards. Absolutely. Right. And if you read our blog about the law, the ministry has yet to hire personnel to handle uh, these requests or created an overall structure that uh, is required by the law uh, since it was first written in 2004. It's basically not really had substantive edits since then. Is that the idea? It was only amended once in 2012. And I think that's problematic because since 2004, you know, um, the extent to which the internet and money are interconnected and uh, how much everything has been turned electronic in one way or another and with the e-currencies etc it makes it like a, a bit strange that during this period of time there was only one moment in which they said okay we need to re reconsider the content of this law etc i think there's also i mean you don't really need to think about it this far just think about it in the terms of like how many people used to be on the internet in 2004 as opposed to now in 2004 there were about nine percent of the entire population on the internet that's a lot less data than right now that's being generated right now there are about 76.1 percent of the population on on the internet, a lot of them are on social media. That's a lot of data being generated. It's a I lot mean, of data that's being processed. Yeah, I mean, like Google knows where I am every moment of the day. Absolutely. And to me, it's also scary that when you were talking about the economy ministry having the power just a bit earlier, even if it's uh, it's not like a, a strongly political institution in the sense of, um, you know, like the interior ministry, which deals with more security. To me, it's all as problematic that the economy ministry, which is usually just like, you know, a banker or a businessman or someone who is like in bed with, with the financial elite or the, the business elite, it's extremely con controversial that they own or be able to use our data in this way, in any way. And more than that, this law really sets up for uh, any private company that's close to these ministers to get that data without our consent, our explicit consent, which is also dangerous. Right. It, it doesn't have like the safeguards like specifically about exactly how this data can be used, right? Yeah, that's true. There is a legal framework existing outside of Lebanon, which is the GDPR, which is the most sweeping privacy regulations. In the it's, EU. Yeah, it's based in the EU. It's been applied outside of the EU as well, especially if you're a business that is trying to get customers in the EU that's already put provisions, but this law fails to take into account these provisions because it's so outdated. So obviously this law could use a lot of work. So specifically though, what would the recommendations be? I assume some sort of like giving resources uh, to a competent body, perhaps creating a new body that's more independent. Uh, what 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 would you recommend? Absolutely, that's what uh, that's exactly what we would recommend. We would recommend an independent authority to to oversee the processing of personal data, but to a limited extent. You know, you don't want anyone to have full control over your data. And and that 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 would also like we talked about the lack of safeguards in the current law that that plays into that as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, we need to think about this law within the overall framework of data protection laws in the world. 
and most importantly, the GDPR, which is the most sweeping privacy law. So basically, like, look at best practices around the world. Like, I, I, I'm sure you're not uh, advocating that Lebanon, like, outsource its law making to the EU. No, right? no, no, I'm not. I'm just saying that we need to take into account how other governments are looking at privacy and looking at data in this current infrastructure and internet context because the e-transaction law that we have now not much has changed in terms of the recommendations these are recommendations that were first put in 2004 so much has has changed since then i mean just think about in 2004 there was no facebook now everyone's on facebook so that's something that we need to think about as well i i think that's about that's about all we have uh this week Thanks so much for for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate it. And and also, uh, there's something coming up in the future, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. And we are organizing Bread and Net, which is uh, the first digital rights unconference in the region. So it's by Arab uh, activists, lawyers, artists, for Arab activists, lawyers, artists. And one of the things that we'll be talking about is legal frameworks in the Arab region about cybersecurity. And when and where is that? So it's going to be in Antwerp, in Hamra, on the 20th and the 21st of November. So come see us. All right. Great. Thanks so much. So, yeah, we encourage our listeners to take a look at Smex's work, um, check out their website and follow them on social media. And we also encourage our uh, listeners to follow us on SoundCloud. So when you finish with this episode, just press subscribe uh, so that you get a notification when the episode drops every uh, Sunday midnight. And share our episode with your friends. Tell people who are interested to know it. Because, you know, we don't do do promotion. We have a very limited budget, which is zero. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually don't think people should subscribe for themselves. I think that they should steal their friend's phone and and sign their friends up to subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, that's the best idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be sneaky about it, though. And follow your Twitter account, too. Yeah. All right, great. Well, we are going to see you guys next week, unless there is a cabinet formation, and we'll see you sooner. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And I'm Azal Masri. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.